and welcome back to The Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett, and I'm joined as always by Max Frost. And as promised last week, if you listen to the end, we have a very special guest today. Great show ahead. Max, take it away. So we're joined today by Ambassador Paul Wolfowitz. Uh, Many of you are probably familiar with Ambassador Wolfowitz. He was the Deputy Secretary of Defense during the George Bush years. But beyond that, he was President of the World Bank, Ambassador to Indonesia, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia. He's done a lot of a lot of different work and knows a lot about a lot of topics. Yes, that's quite the understatement. And because of that, we had a very far-reaching conversation. We didn't want to contain ourselves to just one small topic. So we talked a lot about China, the Middle East, and the rest of the world as well. We learned a lot this week. We know you will too. So without further ado, here is the ambassador. Ambassador Wolfowitz, thanks for coming on the show. Nice to be here. Thanks. So you're, if you're softball losers, <laughs> rubbing it in, sorry. <laughs> Had to get the interviewer off balance. Were you paid right? by Wilbur Ross to say that? <laughs> the AEI softball team took a nasty beating in the championship last night. It was totally unfair, though. I will say it, it was our first loss in two years, and it is they were a great team, and we'll be back next year. Matt Weinstein was a coach of the team. We are calling for his head. Right <laughs> I have, my job security is at Jay Gruden levels right now. I think. <laughs> So, Ambassador Wolfowitz, you have experience just about everywhere, Middle East policy, Asia policy, Africa with the World Bank. When you look at the world today, what do you see? Reason to be optimistic or only pessimistic? Well, let me put it this way. I've seen much worse times. And that's without having really been aware of World War II when I was alive but two years old. And even the Korean War period, the beginning of the Cold War, is something I really basically only know from books. And yet, the you know, the post-Vietnam period was pretty awful. The late 70s when the Soviet Union seemed to be on the march and we seemed to be very weak and very divided here at home looked pretty pretty depressing. I mean, another summary of that one was uh, high unemployment, high inflation, and the Soviets on the march and Americans taken hostage in Iran, which was really kind of at the time something without precedent, I guess still is. So I think maybe it makes me too willing to believe that things can change for the better, but it, they, it certainly does give me that conviction. When I look around the world today, though, I, I see a lot to be concerned about. And I guess if I had to say the two things that trouble me the most, one is the spectacle here in the United States that apparently George Soros and Charles Koch are getting together to pour a lot of money into mobilizing people in behalf of the same kind of isolationism that we had in the 1930s, which was another very bad time. And at the same time, we have, in a sort of a way, a new imperial access, axis with an I. That is to say, there are, I could add some other countries to it, but particularly China, Russia, and Iran that have dreams of their imperial past, restoring their imperial glory, and I think prepared to do it by whatever means will work. And they seem to see the weaknesses in the American position the resulting weaknesses in some of our allies. And I mean, Russia to pick not the worst example or even the most dangerous one, but in some ways the most striking one, has built a position in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East that Putin's predecessors could only dream of. And I think there are going to be big consequences from that. So I worry, but I I think there's enormous restorative power in this country. Uh, People, when they... Be, finally begin to understand the stakes have a way of rising to the occasion. And I think uh, 
I think one of the things, by the way, that is underestimated in such a, I was going to say the debate we have, such as it is about freedom or Bush's freedom agenda, it's all kind of, to some extent, even its advocates think of it as a humanitarian moral cause. But the truth of the matter is it's a incredibly important for realpolitik if, as I believe, huge numbers of the people around the world, including citizens of the, or subjects is a better word, of the countries that we're most concerned about really want freedom. And we're seeing that in Hong Kong now. I mean, what's happening with millions of people turning in the streets, supposedly Chinese, well, they are, they're Chinese, but they're supposedly subjects of China. They don't like being subjects of Beijing. Uh, they're making it very clear. I think that's a huge weakness of that regime. And I think there are similar weaknesses in Tehran and in Moscow. So, that's, I guess, one of my biggest sources of optimism. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and we want to get into all of this. But I just my first question would only be, half an hour. Though. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no. Well, so honing in though on the three Fair nations enough. you mentioned: Iran, China, and Russia. They're all adversaries of the United States right now. But do you think some people argue that they're not nearly as threatening as we might think, especially in the long term, because all of them have looming demographic crises on the horizon? I think Iran has a big youth bulge in their population. Russia's population, I think, might be declining, or at least it is soon. And China has their huge problem with the one-child policy, where they now have a huge gender imbalance, and eventually their population is going to decline as well. And invert, where they, they, I think they will have more seniors than working-age populations by around 2040, 2050, something like that. That would seem to imply that going forward, they, they'll have a lot more problems on the horizon than we might think right now. So do you think they're, they're going to be on the rise for a while, or do they have much larger issues they'll have to deal with? I wouldn't reduce it to demographics. And as you noticed, in one case, a youth bulge is a big asset. In the other case, a youth bulge, the op it's the opposite, the other way around. I guess the youth bulge is, is a problem to the extent that the youth are going to be a force against the regime. I guess that's probably true. But I mean, I think China has quite a few other problems, many of them self-inflicted, like the one-child policy was self-inflicted. And as a matter of the fact, the ramifications of the one-child policy, I think, go beyond just the demographics of it. It's the whole structure of Chinese families. I was ambassador in Indonesia where the commercial sector is ethnically probably 90% Chinese, and they're all family businesses. It's hard for me to imagine how a Chinese economy functions without large families, but this is what they're going to have to do now. You have a whole generation of people with no brothers and sisters, no uncles and aunts, no cousins. So it's a pretty dramatic structural change. And I think that's what, one of the themes of the volume that Nick Eberstadt just put out recently, which I recommend to your listeners. Right. Um, and you can do a link. <laughs> yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. But I don't think China is 10 feet tall. And in fact, as I wrote an AI blog a little while ago, I, I, I think I called it a glass half full. One might have even said a glass half empty. I mean, after 70 years of communism, the PRC, the communist China, still has a per capita income that's one-tenth, roughly more or less, of Japan's. I think one quarter of Taiwan's, which is an, an, you know about as close to China as you could come in terms of ethnic background, cultural fact features. It is essentially a Chinese society, although they don't like being called that. So I don't think it's such a great success story. And one of the reasons it's much further behind than it should have been is because of the damage done by Mao Zedong. And now you've got a leader in China who seems to want to go back, turn the clock back to Mao, have unlimited time in office, have glorifying 
idolizing the, the thoughts of the chairman. It's, I don't think it's a healthy formula for moving forward. So it's worrisome. And I must say I had a certain optimism that at the end of the day, the forces of modernization would also affect, would begin to affect China the way I saw them affect South Korea, which is to say you get a larger middle class that begins to push for change and the political system, not that it's perfect in South Korea, but it's light years better than it was when I was in charge of Korean affairs at the State Department in the early 1980s. So, But we don't see that happening in China. To play somewhat devil's advocate here, well, China's record is obviously tainted and not as good as some countries. There are very few, if I mean any, countries that in the last 30, 40 years have experienced such progress economically in terms of going, having such a large share of the population in poverty, such a large share out of poverty. Are there lessons that should be drawn from China's rise? Or do you think that the American, the Western style of liberal capitalism is still the most... I think the most commonly drawn lesson is a is the wrong one, and not to beat up on President Obama, but I believe I heard him say it this way, and I think people get it wrong when they put it. They say that for many people in the world, they would rather have prosperity and economic well-being than freedom, uh, as though it's always a choice like that. And I'm not sure that's even true that they would always choose that. I think the people in Hong Kong are making a fairly dramatic choice in the opposite direction because they're even risking their personal freedom in a sense to have more fundamental free. I don't want to make too much of that one particular case, but it's an important one. But I think that, I mean, two of the most obvious counterexamples to China in a sense, one is Japan. I mean, it's spectacular success from the devastation of World War II and two atomic bombings and the firebombing of Tokyo. It's hard to get more further back than they were. And yet, in the 1980s, we were talking about Japan as the next economic superpower, obviously a little bit exaggerated, but nevertheless, it was a, a spectacular success. And the fact that it's stagnating a little bit in the last decade or two doesn't take away from the fact that they made great progress in a much more liberal environment, not what we or the British would consider free markets by any means, or it's not a democracy in the same way that we think of it, but it's it's a pretty open society and open economy. And if you limit it to the last 30 years, then you have to sort of forget about the progress the United States made itself in the 19th century, which is, I think, one of history's great achievements. The Chinese did a lot by copying other people, and that starts to run out as a way of moving forward when you're at the level they're at now. I mean, I'll cite an authority again, an AEI scholar, Derek Scissors, has an interesting piece that he says the Chinese miracle is fading away faster than the Taiwanese or the Jap um, the Korean or the Japanese did, mm -hmm. and fading away sooner, and uh, I think he says more dramatic. So I think the jury is still out, but what I do believe pretty strongly is that what Xi Jinping is doing is not good for the economy. When you have every person who has asked to take a risk, economic risk, worrying about that it's also going to put him in jail in jail for a long time on so-called corruption charges because things don't happen there without some degree of corruption, unfortunately. So on the one hand, on the other hand, I have to, do, have to say this. I think you have to give some credit to this way in which autocrats in South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore were able to move the economies forward uh, and probably couldn't have been done in without a certain degree of that state interference. 
but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best way. And I do think it's a it's a it's a system that eventually implodes on itself unless it begins to open up politically. Isn't the worry though now kind of similar to the Cold War, where developing nations are going to look at the two superpowers, the United States and China, and look for a model that they should follow themselves? And at least. Are you concerned that they're going to look at the Chinese model and think that the more authoritarian, state-led economic development is a superior model to the Western, United American-led democratic capitalist one? Fair question, and people ask it. But I, I mean, to take Africa, which I care a lot about and spent some time with, I think they're, the problem there is not that they're going to look to China as the model, but they look to China's political system as the model. And their biggest development obstacle is the fact that they're almost all of them dictatorships, even the successful ones, and most of them are corrupt dictatorships that don't, that don't manage to function economically. So I think I think the problem there is not that they look to China as the model, but China is the corrupting factor that comes in willing to do business on terms that American companies are not allowed to do because of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And I think that's something that we really have to find a way through because I do believe that not that I'm, you know, rah-rah for American business everywhere in the world, but I do think in developing countries, it's much better if the investment's coming from American businesses than if it's coming from Chinese state-owned enterprises. So I think that's a problem and not an emulation problem. Latin America has its own difficulties of admiring strong, strong men in this era for reasons that I don't pretend to understand, but I don't think, again, it's emulating China. And I don't think it's... it's begin If you look at Venezuela, they're obviously beginning to have some real doubts about it. So the problem is, I would say, more kind of limited to, to Asia and not to South Asia because the Indians don't emulate China about anything. Uh, I just hope they can, can emulate success in, in a better way. And I still think Asians are able to look at Taiwan and Japan and and even Singapore, which is, a, in spite of everything, a more open system than China, and say, we really don't have to do it that way. I know a lot of Indonesians, obviously. I don't see them. I mean, they want Chinese money. They want Chinese markets. That's what they want from China. They don't want a Chinese political system. Yeah, and something that we were talking about right before this, too, is this whole MBA controversy with China. Where do you see, What do you see the role of, I mean, to some extent, through government policy, we the government can force a different economic relationship with China. But I feel like what this MBA controversy has kind of made clear is that to a, a large part of that, it's going to be up to private corporations or you know corporations, whether private or public, to make their own decisions and put almost national interests or you know democratic ideals over the pursuit of profit. Do you think that's going to be possible? Because at any minute, any president can come in and flip the switch and say, we're going to be better towards China. We're going to be more you know, aggressive towards China. So through that all, it's going to kind of come down to corporations to make decisions about to what extent to engage in China. Do you see any way that co corporations like the NBA or other ones would be willing to stand up to China, even though it's just going to hurt their bottom line? Let me start with a broad proposition, because Matt referred earlier to the Cold War. One of There's several things that are different about this competition and much more difficult, I think, for the United States. And one of them is the degree to which our economies are interconnected, intermeshed. We didn't have people eager to get visas. We didn't have Soviet scholars who would kowtow to the Soviet Union in order to get visas to visit there. We didn't have tourists clamoring to go there. We didn't have basketball teams that wanted to play there. 
we weren't selling our movies there. I mean, it could go on with a much longer list. So this coercive power that the Chinese are using against private citizens and private action, I mean, the NBA thing is just the tip of the iceberg. I think if you look at Australia and New Zealand, it's much worse. If you look at what happened to Cathay Pacific because a few of their employees went and demonstrated in Hong Kong and the whole top leadership was forced to quit, it's pernicious. And I'm not sure how you fight it, but I think it's important to be able to develop some tools to do it. And it does seem to me that one of the tools is lies somewhere in the area with all of, I shouldn't say all of, but some number of wealthy young Chinese going to Harvard and driving around in their Ferraris. I'm caricaturing. Ferrari bit is probably an exaggeration, but... Teslas, probably. <laughs> because of their environmental <laughs> consciousness. I mean, that, that it seems to me a nerve that could be pressed. I think the mere fact that I would bet I don't have I think maybe our government has knows the, these facts that there's an awful lot of Chinese money that's laundered into safer places than China including the United States and I think exposing that fact which exposes the wealth of the people who own it is something that's politically potent and would be a good price for them. they need to pay a price for what they're doing to try to silence people in this country there are things you know, if you go back again to this Cold War analogy, people sort of forget it. But I would say, having known the late Senator Henry Jackson, who was the famous author of the Jackson-Vanek bill, and people say, well, that was to pressure the Soviet Union to allow Jewish emigration from the Soviet Union. His his heirs can can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a major motivation was to stop American business from getting into the Soviet Union and creating the very kind of, of dependence on a t totalitarian dictatorship that we have to deal with now today. Yeah. So there are things that government and Congress can do to make to reduce the problem. It seems to me though that it should go beyond just Congress and their government. We have this it's a small group but non-negligible, this patently ridiculous BDS boycott divest sanction Israel movement in America. And yet there doesn't seem to be any movement among young progressive leaning people to boycott and divest China, for example. Maybe the NBA thing will be a tipping point here, but when you have I'm just I'm surprised that there's not more of a public uproar, especially given the Uyghur concentration camp things happening, just among the grassroots of the American public to boycott businesses that are so entangled in the Chinese economy. So do, do you see? I mean, is there an analogy there at all? And do you see any possibility for popular movement to? I think there is an analogy. I don't know if analogy is the right word. I think there is a a model to think about. And the first thing that comes to mind is that. When 22 democratic countries wrote a letter to the chairman of the UN Human Rights Commission, committee I guess it's called, uh, condemning the Chinese con treatment of Muslims in Xinjiang, Beijing managed to generate 37 signatures on an opposing letter saying, no, no, this is anti-terrorism policy and it's a great success. And of the 37, I think 20 were Muslim countries. So there's a problem right there. I mean. If they want to go after Israel, then they ought to start talking about concentration camps in Xinjiang. I think the Chinese behavior in Xinjiang, frankly, is one of the most nauseating things that Xi Jinping is doing. Mm -hmm. And I always want to hesitate about over hyping the, you know, if this were Hitler, but I would we be supporting American investment in Germany if had we known just the kinds of things that they were doing with the money they were earning? And I think. So, which is why in, in an article I wrote recently in the Wall Street Journal, I said, let's at least begin with the World Bank, which continues to lend money to a country that doesn't really use it for development and uses its own resources to build concentration camps. 
I think we should start thinking about getting American pension funds, which are investing the retirement funds of American teachers, for example, in a fairly large scale in companies that are building the surveillance technology that is critical to those concentration camps. And look, this is a long and complicated problem. I mean, it's a problem that will take more than just a quick fix. Is it a it needs new a strategy. long twilight struggle, do you think, to continue the Cold War analogy? <laughs> we have too many long long struggles on our hands, <laughs> but, but in a way, yes. And I think the how long it is depends in large measure on how long the Chinese people are willing to put up with the regime that governs them. And I've had so many lectures from Chinese officials, bureaucrats, about how something or other like granting asylum to a pretty woman tennis player who didn't want to go back to China is offending, hurting the feelings of 1.2 billion Chinese people. He'd, of course, done a personal survey of every one of them. <laughs> uh, there's no way to make that kind of statement when you don't have anything like opinion polls or ele- much less elections. Yeah. I'm not saying that someday 1.2 billion Chinese people are going to demonstrate the way the people in Hong Kong are, but I, I'm not, I think it's not beyond the possibility that the powers that be in the Communist Party will begin to say this is not a good way for our future. It may be good for Xi Jinping. It's not good for us. And we want to go back at least to the system where the leader only stayed in office for eight years and then we had a systematic turnover. I think that's one of his big weaknesses now. Switching tack a bit here. Mm-hmm. Iraq is another country that's been experiencing lots of protests, riots, whatever it's been over the last um, couple of weeks. What are your thoughts on Iraq? Is the jury still out? Could that still become a democratic success story in the Middle East? Or is the situation there just too complex, too volatile for that to happen? I think the jury would be out if we don't just totally walk away because, I, mean, I th- look, the country has many problems, but I heard from a retired army colonel who I knew for a long time ago who was very skeptical about Iraq's prospects. And he's in business now, and he he emailed me from Baghdad, and he said, you won't believe what's going on here. People in cafes at night, It's the, the economy is booming. There's a very prosperous, open kind of civil life. Maybe he's exaggerating a little, but it was striking because he wasn't someone prone to that sort of exaggeration initially. I think that Obviously, one of the biggest problems for their own self-government is the corruption of the system. And I don't think we help matters by setting up a constitution. For some reason, we I don't know whether it's we or the UN, seems to like these party-list systems like Italy and Turkey and Israel, which I would have thought were models to avoid <laughs> because they create basically little tyrannies within the political parties. And that really is a formula for everything is rent-seeking. Or corruption. So that's the one big problem. And the second big problem is obviously the Iranian influence, which is very pernicious. And one of the problems is we're far away and they're close. And if you're an Iraqi trying to decide, well, is your future better accommodating the Iranians in some way, or is your future better assisting a more American Western approach? Then the way the U.S. has been behaving in the last eight years, or I guess we're now into 11 years, is not one to encourage people to say, well, I'm going to put my chips on the United States. But I, I think it's a terrible mistake to underestimate the importance of the Middle East just because 
just because we're energy so-called energy independent, which is a misstatement. We're energy self-sufficient. We depend on the world economy, which is itself dependent on that energy. So we're not energy independent. And more importantly, our most important ally in East Asia is, I don't know the numbers, but Japan must be close to 50%, if not higher, dependent on Persian Gulf energy sources. And our principal competitor adversary, whichever term you prefer, the PRC is almost equally dependent on those energy resources. So I think there's a much bigger stake there than is commonly realized. And I don't want to open up the whole long debate about should we or shouldn't we have. I do think we'd be looking at a very different Iraq today if we had had a counterinsurgency strategy in year two instead of year seven. And I think we'd have a very different Iraq today if we even at, if we'd only started in year seven, if we hadn't basically walked away in 2011 and then had to come running back because the thing blew up again. I'm a bit afraid, more than a bit afraid, that whatever Trump is going to do here in Syria is going to blow up again in Syria and then in Iraq. And that's people forget that the thing that pulled us back into Iraq was the explosion in Syria. I was about to ask, I hope, so this podcast, we're recording on Tuesday, what is it, October 8th, mm -hmm. I believe, and it probably won't be released till next week. So I'm hoping we're out of date by the time we get to this. But yeah, Sunday night, there's this big news that Trump was announcing we were withdrawing troops from Syria and clearing the way for Turkey to essentially invade, I think. What do you make of that decision and what are the downsides if he decides to go through with it? I started trying to read about it, not to talk to you guys, but just to try to get educated. And it's an incredibly complicated problem with multiple players, Not all, some of whom have been on our side. Even some of the ones that have been on our side are a little problematic, not to mention our NATO ally, Turkey. So from a simple proposition, what really strikes me is there doesn't seem to be much question that we're walking away from people that were depending on us and whom we supported when it was convenient for us and who will say that's what you always do with the Kurds because this is a history that goes back at least to the 1970s when we sold out the Kurds in the interest of helping the Shah in Iran. So that's a very bad reputation, I think, for the United States to have anywhere in any important part of the world and particularly in that part of the world. So starting from that simplistic observation, I would say it's a mistake. And I don't understand what we gain by it. It's not as though we're taking a thousand casualties a year from the modest support that we provide to these people. And if we have a little bit of an issue with Erdogan over it, I would say that's a plus rather than a minus. So I'm kind of mystified, except I think it's this sort of kind of hypnotizing slogan about endless wars. I mean, one way you end wars is you lose them. Yeah. <laughs> And another way you end wars is you win them. And we won in World War II. We won in both Asia and, and Europe, and we're still there. And it's better because we stayed, and we stayed in Korea, even though, you know, from the point of view of casualties and the political impact on President Truman, it was a disaster. But it's now a huge success story because we stayed, and I, I hope we don't end up under Kim Jong-un's administrations deciding, well, that's one war that's gone on too long. It isn't, it isn't going on anymore. Yeah. Just from also what I've read on this, thank you, I, I agree with you. But what does winning, what would winning in Syria look like for the U.S. at this point? Because I don't think anybody thinks we're going to topple Assad anymore. But people do seem to agree that troops should stay in the region. So what would a success in Syria for the United States look like, do you think? Now you're taking me out of my depth. <laughs> in the first place, in terms of what we're dealing with now, 
that the people we've been supporting should, should not feel betrayed and they should retain what little bit they've been able to secure with our help. Beyond that, I guess I would say that I think we underestimate our own ability at minimum cost to the United States to create something that President Trump talked about for a while and seems to have forgotten called safe zones. If you go back to the end of the first Gulf War, we created a safe zone in northern Iraq with a short exception when Saddam sent his tanks back in and we unfortunately failed to stop it. It remained a Kurdish a zone of Kurdish autonomy right up until we came in in 2003. And the people that we supported during that long period of 12 years plus uh, are our principal ally in that part of the world. So we, at no cost to the United States, basically, because we did it all with air power support for people who were willing to fight, we were able to significantly influence what was happening on the ground in a way that serves American interest to this day. So I think that's a concept that I don't think one should say that what what belongs to Assad now is going to belong to him forever. And I think we could have a strategy that begins to chip away. I think we're probably about out of time. I've got one last question I want to ask you. Something increasingly now that's all over the news and everybody's talking about, especially in the Democratic primaries, climate change. Should climate change become a priority in foreign policy? Is this something that we should be really looking at and figuring out how to combat it for the sake of our own national security? I think I'd almost flip it around. I would say to the extent climate change is a priority, and I think there's a strong case to be made that it may not be a national emergency. It may not rise to the level of a serious national security issue, depending how you want to define that. But it's certainly something that there's a risk there that ought to be mitigated is the way I would put it. To actually eliminate it is so incredibly expensive. You somehow have to have a strategy that takes account of uncertainties about what mitigating climate change. I mean, there are people want to say the science is clear. I think the science is pretty strong, but I think to say it's, it's definitive one way or another in terms of what will deal with temperature rises is, let me put it this way anyway, it's beyond me. And the expense of really trying to make a huge dent is. I think, unquestionably large. But if it's an important issue, and I think it is, then it should be a foreign policy issue because the United States is not the principal source of carbon in the atmosphere today. It's China. And we sign these agreements that somehow seem to bind us more than they bind the people who are the biggest polluters. So I don't know how you change that. But if it's an important issue, I think it's something that ought to be a subject of serious foreign policy concern. All right. I can end it right there, I think. Yeah. Okay. Ambassador Wolfowitz, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please, 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 we know you are tired of hearing us say this. Like us, leave us a review, leave us a comment, iTunes, Stitcher, the Apple Store. Spread the word. Spread the word. Tell your mom, tell your family, tell your dog. Get those downloads up. That is just about all the time we have this week. We'll be back next week with Larry Seltzer of the Conservation Fund. Talk a little about environmental policy and free market solutions to environmental degradation. Greta Thunberg, unfortunately, never got back to us, but we got the next best thing, and we hope you tune in then. So, at the... uh, you're too far away from the microphone.